Well, good evening. It really is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity and, um, and thank you um, for the time that we could spend and praise to our Lord with music and, and um, you know, one of those songs about depending on the Lord, I was sitting there saying, man, I'm getting old now and uh, it's been a lot of years and I think I could always, have always been trying to sing that song. <laughs> about depending on the Lord, because it's um, without the Lord, I don't know where I'd be. <laughs> I'm grateful for Pastor Ted for the invitation. I'm grateful for his spouse, Dr. Brittany Kim, who uh, teaches adjunct for us at North Park Theological Seminary. So grateful. And for others I've gotten to meet briefly here tonight. God bless you in your ministry. I remember when I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and learning about this Vineyard Church, and several of my classmates attended here. So I'm um, grateful for this opportunity I get to speak here. So I'm going to take a moment to pray and then get into our text for tonight, but it seems like you've been having a rich weekend, so I'm grateful for that. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. We're grateful, Lord God, for who you are, for what you, who you, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And we thank you, Lord God, for this opportunity that we have to, to sing in celebration and reflection of who you are. And we have time to pray, to have ourselves centered around our Lord Jesus. And some time in the scriptures now. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate the truth of your word. You would speak um, through me, use me and my my limitations and my idiosyncrasies, and I pray that they would not get in the way of the word that you would have for your people, that you would let what you put on my heart be uh, helpful for these, your people. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. We're pilgrims in this barren land. We're weak, but you're mighty, so hold us with your powerful hand. And bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as a member of a minoritized group within the United States, I've had my share of agitation over injustice. And I'm calling the title of this message, Sometimes We Have to Shout. Yet given the way that our society operates, especially even among some Christians, I was not really allowed to show my agitation, at least in some circles. There were some Christians who couldn't stomach someone telling them a about being discriminated against. Like when a white church attendee, when I was back in Brooklyn, this is before I uh, went to seminary, my wife and I were struggling. We had one little one, and we're trying to find a place we could afford to rent. He had a vacant apartment, but he told my wife and me that uh, he couldn't rent to black people because it would upset his neighbors. White church people didn't want to hear people like me talk about being pulled over by the police, like when I was locking the doors to our little church. This is now after that time, and I was planting a church in Brooklyn. I was pulling the bars down because, you know, you had to have those, that big grate, those burglar bars, they call them, pull them down to cover the windows. And this car was scaring me because it was coming right at me and popped up on the curb, and I'm trying to hurry up to get to my little apartment, which was above the church building. And I got stopped and guns at the ready. I'm like, what in the heck is going on? I said, kept saying, these are just my keys, these are just my keys, because those were the police. Somebody assumed I was robbing the little church 
where I served as the pastor, actually. So white evangelicals, in my experience, by and large, did not like it when the generation before me marched in the streets or sat at lunch counters to protest segregation. So police sprayed those peaceful black protesters with hoses and sick dogs on them. And today, when we simply say black lives matter, some white Christians get downright hostile, even after we saw George Floyd murdered by police a few years ago. So interestingly, I have had Christians tell me that it is wrong to engage in protests to raise our voices, but many were silent when a mob stormed the Capitol. So I'm here just to say this evening, that when it comes to injustice, it's right to shout against it. In fact, God is the one that's calling for the shouting. God is angry at passive acceptance of injustice when we see fellow human beings suffer and we go on about our business as if that suffering doesn't count as long as it isn't happening to us. So we're going to turn our attention to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 58. I almost didn't know these verses were in the Bible. I was in seminary reading for something for preaching for a class, and I came across Isaiah 58, and I said, this is in the Bible? I said, nobody was teaching me this stuff for years. And that was back in the 80s when I came across this stuff. So it's been a long time that these words have been sitting with me. And you know what? They're still relevant for us right now. Here we go, Isaiah chapter 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They want God on their side. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will, shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called 
the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord blesses the reading of his word. These opening verses of Isaiah, the, the very first ones, are a call to make some noise against injustice. God calls the prophet to shout and don't hold back. He tells him to raise his voice like a trumpet. That sounds like a protest to me. The point of the protest isn't to start some new program or to raise a special offering for some charitable project. Isaiah is told to shout because the people of Israel need to know that they've lost their focus. They need to see that justice is a way of life that they had and they have been losing their way. The people need to see that God is not blind to the way some humans can exploit others directly or be passive observers of injustice, doing nothing to alleviate the oppression that fellow humans face. So I want to encourage us this evening, even with these stern words from Isaiah. I want to encourage us to see that the word of God does not merely tolerate our passion for justice. It commands us to have this passion. The Spirit of God desires that we upset complacency to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like. The Spirit of God tells us to be agitated but not hopeless, to be annoyed but not in despair, to be indignant but not arrogant, to be loud but not impudent, to be audacious but not impertinent. I, I know that the expression social justice has become an evil expression for some Christians. I know this. But the concept of social justice, well, it's biblical. I mean, God invented it. And I must keep in mind the reality that as angry and agitated and frustrated as I get over injustice, God is even angrier about it. He's the one annoyed in this passage in Isaiah 58. So let's look again at the passage. I mean, let's, let's look at it and, and, and see that it, how it not only helps us to confront injustice, but also compels us to contribute to positive, transformative growth in our world. So one clear point that emerges for me anyway right away is that God wants us to broaden our understanding of worship. God wants us to broaden our understanding of worship. It's about 800 years before Jesus showed up in the flesh. God sent Israel prophets. At least that was a high point of prophets being sent out. Not to shame them, but to call them back to an active and vital faith. One of their favorite words in, in Hebrew Bible is often translated turn or return or even repent. It's the Hebrew verb shuv. So one of my seminary professors, who was probably gone by the time Pastor Ted got there, was uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser. He wound up going to Gordon Conwell. He always tried to be funny in class and make puns. So he said the prophets would give the people a shuv in the right direction. <laughs> but that's what their job was, to get them back on track, right? So another one of these 8th century prophets, a contemporary of Isaiah, well, 
our contemporaries are Amos and Micah. So I'm going to turn to some passages that are well-known in many Christian circles. These are some of the most famous words from those prophets. Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 21. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then, of course, in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Many Christians today still speak and act as if worship means singing. Now, I've, I've been around for a while, I mean, relatively speaking, in church, church world. I'm an amateur musician. I play the saxophone and the flute. So I've been involved in a lot of praise um, services, either as a speaker or sitting in with a band or doing stuff or being a pastor of a church. So I've been in a lot, a lot of meetings where we're planning something. And I will hear somebody say, we'll worship for about 15 minutes and then move on to the whatever. And I always like cringe a little because we know that worship's not just singing. Now, as I say that, I'm not just a cranky old man when I complain about contemporary worship in some churches. I mean, worship is not about smoke machines and fancy theatrics. I mean, I understand there are some churches that are really slick about it. I mean, it's kind of cool and you feel like, wow, I'm like in this really special place where I can't see anybody because it's dark, but it's really nice. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, it's all good. I'm, like I said, I'm not just being cranky about it. But I do have a problem because we know that from the Old Testament and the New Testament that worship isn't just a Sunday activity. The Apostle Paul, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. He says, don't, don't, and, you know, don't have your mind, you know, don't be conformed to the way this world operates. I think that's a good word for even how we do church. Don't be conformed to the way the world operates, but be transformed by having your mind renewed. Then you can demonstrate what the good and acceptable, perfect will of God is. So we know that worship is more than the movements or actions that we perform in a building. Of course, worship does include those things, but it is not only those things. Worship is about drawing near to God with our whole selves in all that we do. You're catching that, I think, in the first few verses of Isaiah 58, why the Lord is so agitated. Worship is about more than just that one fast day, he's saying. So when you're dropping off your kids and creating a loving atmosphere in the car that they'll remember for the rest of their lives, for the rest of their lives, that can be an act of worship. When you resist racism, or speak out against oppression, 
that can be an act of worship. When you stop to pray with a friend who is hurting, that could be an act of worship. When you invite your neighbors over for a meal or shovel their snow or take out their trash, you might be performing an act of worship. Isaiah says it this way in verse 10, when you spend yourself on behalf of others. Spend yourself. That's an act of worship. So now I know. I know it's a sacrifice to get into a building at a certain period of time for a group experience and celebration. It can be a sacrifice. We are laying aside other things to come and do this. I understand that. And it's important for us to do this, and it truly can be a sacrifice. But keep in mind that worship is more than pious acts we do when we're all gathered together. I was a church planter in Brooklyn, New York. It was in the, we started in the fall of 1989. It's hard to believe, that's about 34 years ago. We were one year behind Dr. Tim Keller and Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I met him when we were starting our church and they were already meeting with people up in Manhattan. We were in Brooklyn. We called our new church, New Community. And I remember this young woman there who was part of our early group as we were getting together. We had Bible study in my home, then we started worshiping in a rented facility. And uh, when we started to grow a little bit, she decided she didn't want to come anymore. Now, we thought we were like a community. In fact, I helped her move when I was younger. I always had a big vehicle because we have four children. So that meant I moved people a lot. And, and uh, I used to lift weights more heavily than I do now. Now I'm just happy to get in the gym and do whatever. But um, so I was often lifting things, you know, carrying stuff. That's probably why I got all this arthritis in my shoulder now, and I think about it. But I used to carry this stuff up the stairs, and she was one of those people. I moved into her apartment, carried this stuff. So I, mean, I felt like we were a community, and she decided she was going to leave. So I asked her, why are you leaving? And she said a phrase that 34 years later, I still remember. She said, church is something I go to, not something I'm part of. And I thought to myself, I knew people thought that way. I just didn't think our people thought that way. Church is something I go to, not something I'm part of. The irony in all of this is about a week after, maybe a couple of weeks after she left, she called up for my wife to come by and help her because she was sick and she needed somebody to run to the pharmacy to get her medicine and to help her with some tasks around the house. Now, my wife didn't grow up in New York, so she's nicer than I am. Because <laughs> I would have said, later for you. That was our Edwards expression when I was growing up, later for you. Like, you don't want to be part of this anymore. Why should we go over to your house and help you out? But of course, my wife did go over and helped her out. And she didn't come back or anything. But it was what we were trying to say is in my wife doing those things is that's church. That's worship. Spending yourself on behalf of others. I was naive about how the people in our young group were interpreting our commitment to each other. And I had to be reminded that not everyone views church as people who grow together so that everyone can become better with some, uh, can become better worshipers of God. So sadly, I would say one of the problems that has been plaguing contemporary Christianity, in, at least in our country, is the consumeristic nature of the experience. We're not always sure what discipleship ought to look like or how to make more disciples in some churches anyway, not here, but in some churches, 
I know that's the case. So those churches will often put a lot of energy into promoting celebrity preachers or creating an entertaining Sunday experience that can sometimes be to the detriment of helping people figure out how to be the agents of mercy, justice, and compassion in a world that needs to see and feel those very things. I mean, look, I, I'm not here to meddle or nothing because I actually don't know. And I'm glad I don't know because when you're a guest, you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes, which is wonderful. But I do know some churches that will put a whole lot of resources into that event that happens on the weekend and not the same kind of resources into developing people who worship with their whole lives every day and not just on Sunday. So my first point was that God wants us to broaden our understanding of worship. And my second point here is that our worship includes dismantling injustice. Our worship includes dismantling injustice. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who met Moses in the fiery bush that did not burn up, is the God who heard the people's cry, saw their oppression, and remembered them in their affliction. God calls Moses, not because Moses was looking for a new job, but because no, Moses but because God knew the plight of the Israelite slaves and wanted Moses to be part of the bringing justice to the downtrodden. So you might recall reading about how during Jesus' ministry on earth now, Moses one example, Jesus' ministry on earth, he visited the synagogue in his hometown and read from this prophet Isaiah, saying that the scripture was fulfilled in their hearing that day. Jesus offered a description of his ministry by proclaiming good news to the poor, bringing sight to the blind, liberating the oppressed. Basically, the sort of things that some Christians think of as not unimportant or secondary or tertiary, if they think about them at all. Those very things were what would mark Jesus's ministry. I was struggling with that church plan in Brooklyn. Our little church really never managed to take off. I felt like a failure, actually. In actuality, there were lots of reasons for our struggles, but for some of the years we ministered, our church opened the doors for what we called homework help for any kid who wanted to stop by. And we only had a few who took us up on it, but we got a call from a local news outlet one day because it turned out that due to budget cuts, this is back in New York a while ago, several libraries were closing or severely restricting their hours. We didn't start the program as a response to that. The news people thought we had. My point is that sometimes by just being the church that focuses on the things that Jesus emphasized in Luke 4 or liberating the oppressed like Moses did or the kinds of things that Isaiah stresses here, we might be providing the very resources that people need at the right time we might be the good Samaritans who help when others walk on by. We might be the ones who demonstrate what it means to be a good neighbor without expecting anything in return. Now, I confess that when I was a pastor, it was hard to convince most of my people that we could be good neighbors even if people didn't show up on Sunday. Because in many evangelical settings, we're taught that if we perform certain good deeds or address issues of injustice, it's really just so that more people will come to our church. The end game 
is just to get more attendance. And I used to think that way many years ago. But over time, I came to realize that I simply want to be faithful to love God and love my neighbor. And that doesn't always mean that my neighbor wants to reciprocate, reciprocate or is able to reciprocate or even thinks about reciprocating because that's not really the point. The point is that love won't tolerate injustice. Well, I like that. I should tweet that <laughs> or exit or whatever. Love won't tolerate injustice. See, think again about that man on the Jericho Road that I'm alluding to. You know the story I'm talking about in Luke. The Levite and the priest passed by, but the marginalized Samaritan stopped and helped the man who had been robbed and left for dead. So Jesus asked, who then became neighbor to the man who was robbed? We can become neighbors without it being about boosting Sunday attendance. It's because it's the right thing to do. When Jesus read from Isaiah and went on to expound on the reading, many people got upset according to Luke's gospel. They were even ready to push Jesus off a cliff. Preaching about justice can get you in trouble. Sometimes you get in trouble with the people who accept, enforce, or even benefit from the status quo. So consequently, Jesus got into conflict with some religious leaders, and at one point, he said this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. That's in Matthew's gospel. Now, notice that trio, justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's pretty much the Micah passage. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Faithfulness. Jesus, the son of God, echoes the prophets who demanded justice and pointed to himself in the language of the ancient prophets. So what's happening here in Isaiah 58 is a prophetic indictment that rebukes God's people for not having the same attitude that God has about injustice. But don't miss the point. They were going through the motions of worship. They were having the fast day. They were assembling and singing. And God was agitated. God expects the people to loosen the bonds of injustice, free the oppressed, share food, house people, clothe people, do the things that help other humans to flourish. And I would add that given the way the prophets often addressed their messages to monarchs and priests, the goal wasn't merely random charitable acts, although those help. Priests had influence over the people of Israel. The kings had rule over the people of Israel. So therefore, it's quite on purpose that the prophets address their messages to kings and priests. The prophets were demanding that the entire system change and become more just. And I want to stress that point a bit. In much of my Christian life, I've heard people discuss evil or sin as merely an individual problem that we deal with privately and personally. We're not taught, at least in many evangelical settings, that systems and structures can perpetuate evil. And it's not simply about your individual acts. 
We don't have to hold public office to resist the injustices of society. We don't always have to take to the streets and demonstrate, even though there's a role for that. We can start by raising our voices in our own spheres of influence. We can start by denouncing injustice and not participating in it or excusing it. I mean, God knows that the world can be an evil place and injustice is part of our reality. It's not the issue. The issue is that God, according to so many scripture references, desires to use Christ followers not to offer condemnation to the world, but instead to be ambassadors of love, to be light, to be salt, to be reconcilers, to mobilize for justice as residents of God's kingdom so that those who do not know Jesus would see what he is like by looking at us. The amazing thing, it sometimes baffles my mind, is that God wants us to be part of suspended from above. And, but the, but the uh, walkway makes you go down, makes you descend. So you get the feeling of, you know, because you have to look up as you walk, of, of perhaps seeing somebody hanging. Because each of those cylinders has the name of somebody and the county where they were lynched. Now, I don't know too much of the Edwards side of the family, and I don't know actually too much of my mother's side of the family either. That's kind of the way it's worked in our country. But I do know that my mother from, was from Lawrence, South Carolina, a small town. So I went looking for Lawrence County and sure enough saw the name of somebody and a date in the 30s of when this person was lynched. And, and I kept putting together in my mind, you know, some of our history because African Americans moved from the South and made their way out of the South in what's called the Great Migration. And for my family, at least my mother's side, South Carolina meant moving up to DC and then eventually up to New York. My grandmother and my mother a single mother and her daughter. My grandmother's youngest sister, if you get the family tree there, she was like one of 12, so the youngest sister. She also was a single mom. And um, the four of them made their way up to Washington, D.C. My great aunt stayed there until she passed away. She lived in D.C. for about 70 years or so. And my mother and Grandmother made their way to New York, which is how she found my father. Now, I'm telling you all this because the Great Migration wasn't just black people randomly deciding to move north, but it was because of the violence of the Jim Crow South that they left. A wonderful book, if you have the opportunity to read it, is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, if you haven't read that yet. Uh, I would strongly recommend it to you, The Warmth of Other Suns. Um, but the point is, for me right now, is to talk about how in that, um, in that migration, um, there was this sense of leaving this place of heavy injustice to find a better way. And as we pursue the better way, God blesses our commitment to justice for all. This is in verses 8 to 14 of that Isaiah 50. I mean, there's some beautiful and wonderful images that I read through earlier, and I would hope that you could go back and spend some time in. Because, because there's, there's beautiful language of God calling us repairers of the breach and restorers of the streets. I mean, it's, it's this way of God saying, look, if you, if you work for justice, I'm going to 
be your rear guard and I'll light the way before you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there with you. We're finding images of God, how he provides for people who, who see fighting injustice as a spiritual practice. That's more than fasting or singing songs. God blesses our commitment to fighting injustice, but God's blessings don't necessarily mean what we might think they mean. See, we often think of blessings as acquiring more material goods. But the blessings signify God's presence. And that's why I was telling you about my family. Because the ultimate blessing is that God will be with us. God will guide us. God will make us fruitful. God will delight over us. So I think about my forebears who endured and even fought against injustice. Their reward wasn't more money in their pockets. Their reward was giving their offspring a better chance. I have a college degree and even a PhD because of the people who fought for justice before I was even born. God's blessing is realized in me and even more in my offspring. Sisters and brothers, we need to break free from selfish and even arrogant thinking that is indicative of much of our culture's individualism. When we break down the walls of injustice, God blesses us by giving us a legacy. God blesses us and helps us to be a monument. People whose, whose lives get better. People who are healed from abuse. People who are transformed from misery to joy. People who are able to provide better options for their children. And of course, God ultimately rewards us with eternal life. Now, some Christians think we should always be quiet but sometimes it's right to shout, to declare the goodness of God in a world that relishes evil. It's okay to shout to the Lord, not just that your needs are taken care of, but to point out that so many are missing out on what should be available to them. So my friends, sisters, and brothers, let me encourage you to imagine what, what worship like Isaiah is talking about what it looks like. I mean, what might that look like for God's people to see fighting injustice as an act of worship? Now, I don't know you as well as you know yourself, but I know God. And God will show you how to be agents of justice if you want to see. And perhaps you've already been seeing what God is showing. So I'm just here to encourage you to keep up the good work. Don't become weary in doing the good work because at the right time, God will bring a harvest if we don't give up. Amen? Amen. Lord, we give you thanks because you are good. Your mercies endure forever. Forever. Lord, we are grateful for the prophet Isaiah who, well, he spoke these firm words to the people, but, but they kept them on record so we could read them all these many years later. And we could be encouraged, too, to say, hey, you are, you are pleased with the offering of our lips, but you're also pleased with the offering of our whole lives, that we want to serve you, Lord, with our whole hearts. Yes, with our minds, with our lips, with our hands. Lord, help us as your people to not think in terms of projects, but in presence, being present in the needs of this world. Because as, act, as an act of worship, we help to make this place 
be more tolerable for those who are suffering and to give people a glimpse of your kingdom right now. So Lord, indeed, your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.